Hi, everyone, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where every week we interview leading professionals, thought leaders, and overall disruptive minds in the field of sustainability to share their views on the present and future of the world through the prism of sustainable development. Today with us, we have Ralph Term, who you most probably remember from our phenomenal interview on the green, inclusive and open economy, or why sustainability is not enough, released on 13 of February 2020. For more than a year, this episode has remained one of the top three most listened episodes. And for a reason. Ralph is a leading professional in sustainable innovation and strategy, operational sustainability, sustainability change management, reporting, and thrivability. A co-founder of a platform called R3.0, and since recently, also a book author. I am beyond honored and happy and excited to be one of the pre-readers of the book and have an opportunity today to discuss his new book called The Corona Chronicles, Envisioning a New Normal for Regeneration and Thriving. Not to keep you all waiting, I'm ready to welcome Ralph in a second. Hi, Ralph. So good to finally see you. After our first recording, I guess it was about March 2020, a lot has changed. So I wanted to ask you, like, first thing first, what are your news? How have you been all this time? And how, well, the unprecedented uh, event that touched the whole world touched you personally and professionally? Yeah, well, thanks, first of all, for having me again. It's really a pleasure to be with you. And uh, yeah, it was really March 25 last year when I started to write this book so it was really shortly after we spoke so um yeah the idea of the book has really kept me very busy over the last year but also the pro professional developments at r3.0 have been quite stunning i am actually i have to admit seeing the crisis more and more as an opportunity than uh, than than really that burden that it is for many many billions of people Ralph, you started quotes on Facebook together with the pictures, the shots you did yourself uh, of things that are important to you. How did it all start and um, how was COVID a, a trigger to all of that? I've been following your work for a while now. Yeah, thanks. So, so COVID-19 was really the big unknown right, in the beginning. So was it just a lung disease? Would it have long-term health consequences? And how killing would it be? So we didn't know. And um, I have the habit to do sort of morning walks with our, with our dog Mila, a black Labrador lady. And during these walks, I, I, I started to ask myself, what would I leave behind if I became infected? What if I died? So what's the core of my thinking really? What would I want to leave here? Um, so these walks in the morning, funnily, uh, became sort of a meditation. And the other thing that happened is that I, I um, always carried a folder of photos on my cell phone, which I found quite remarkable. So pictures that I knew that I would use them someday. So when I came up with these first quotes, because I really wanted to put everything that really stands for myself into like short crispy quotes so the essence of my thinking you may say these pictures suddenly started to pop up again in my mind and sort of started to be asked to be connected to these quotes so the quotes really found their underlying visualization quite quite normally or quite organically so i i first posted these quotes on facebook and then received overwhelmingly positive reactions they went from Oh, so wonderful that you do this to, I'm really waiting for another quote from you when I wake up in the morning, they guide me through the day, wow. um, up to remarks like, this is exactly what we need in these troubling times. These quotes give me strength. So there seemed to be a nerve that I was hitting and that others had the chance to align with these quotes, asking themselves similar questions and where that found more clarity for themselves in a rather chaotic 
time lapse of events happening around the world. So more or less everybody's life was touched by the coronavirus uh, virus, and that is how it all started. And how did you then come up with the idea of putting all of that into a book format? I imagine it's uh, quite a lot of an intellectual work to to pull this all off and put it in, in the book. Yeah, at the at the beginning it was I was just interested to find a bit more of my inner self to explore what the, that Corona situation did to me and how my experience of more than 30 years in the economics and sustainability field, or I, I may call it minefield, <laughs> a minefield correlates with what COVID-19 presented to, to all of us, a global crisis. But hey, we know the climate crisis for decades. We know the biodiversity loss crisis for long. And while these needed equally urgent actions, it was really COVID-19 that showed us what humans are able to, if a life-threatening situation really explodes and how quick we humans are able to adapt if needed. So not, not without difficulties, of course, but still. So after a while, I got more questions if I could bundle these quotes into a booklet. That happened right after the first couple of quotes on Facebook. So I, I suddenly realized that each of these quotes, of course, had a backstory, a certain situation, a certain deeper thought or some other impulse. So the quotes really captured the, es uh, the essence. That was my main aim, to be short and crisp and have it visualized. But then wouldn't it be great to also tell these backstories as well? And that's when I started to flirt with the idea uh, of a book. So early in this process, I knew it wouldn't be the sort of management book. And I asked myself how much of this would just be a copy paste of my daily work at R3.0, which stands for Redesign for Resilience and Regeneration. And it's releasing so-called blueprints for transformation. And I realized that the book would need to be something else. And the question that I also still had, would I have enough to say for a full book? Uh, I then also asked myself who would be the audience for such a book? And that was the moment when I actually decided two things. First of all, it would be more of a reader, not too heavy on technical detail, like around my normal work at R3.0, but really distilling the most important paradigms, lines of thinking, general necessities of a new normal, and contrasting it with the old normal, which is really a, a dead horse that we're still trying to reanimate, just because we don't have the ideas of what a new normal would be like. And Corona would offer these great parallels and even more opportunities, more openness to actually listen. So that was the first thing that I decided. And secondly, I decided the book would have a lot more personal moments from my 30 years of life in the sustainability field. It would really describe my own journey and it would allow for sharing experience from my own travels to all parts of the world and contrasting the sort of discussions here in the Western world with the realities of the Southern world. So I'm, I'm already trying to avoid the, the terms developed countries and developing countries here. Yeah. Uh, I think Corona has already showed us how little developed even the Western world countries are when it comes to things that really matter. For example, solidarity, humbleness, collaboration. And after doing some of these early trials, writing up these backstories, I saw how easy it was for me to write them down. So book writing was always described to me as a daunting and very draining process, but I didn't have that idea at all. It was even refreshing to push me to write down these subchapters. Well, so I think the most difficult part was really the nitty gritty work after the initial writing. So including finding the structure, the red thread for the book, the chapter structure and the editing and the proofreading. That was the most daunting part of it. But for the rest, um, it was a very fulfilling experience and exercise for me. While reading, I've got an impression that it was a story deserving and waiting to be told. True. It was sort of sleeping maybe for a while, and it looked for the right incident to be uncovered. I noticed that you use COVID-19 as a poster child of, you know, hashtag flatten the curve thing. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about that? It triggered a lot in my head as well, like this whole thing, flatten the curve, we've been told so many times. Could you expand on that a little bit? 
one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit more uh, when we go through through the sort of the red thread of the book. Um, but generally speaking, flatten the curve is really um, the major meme of the last 15 months. Um, we've learned about um, healthcare capacity as a marker that we cannot cross. Otherwise, triage would actually happen in hospitals, uh, something to absolutely avoid, and it has already happened. That is just one example of things that we where we need to flatten the curve on, and um, it's something we need to get used to. Right. You develop a picture of the current economic system that you call a slow suicide path. What do you mean by that, and what does it uh, entail? You know, I've been I've been contrasting economic design and sustainability for more than 30 years now. Initially, I was hopeful that economic design could change towards the better, and after neoliberalism would find its way back to serve the well-being of all humans. But the more we at R3.0 reflected upon it, the more we found our current economic system still shows characteristics that speak against the idea of well-being for all. And I can give you just a couple of examples of that. Um, so let me point to some of these um, characteristics. So number one, our current economic system is still colonial style and oppressive by design. Just look at the discussion about the vaccine spread globally and how the WTO rejected making available necessary patents to Southern Hemisphere countries for local and own production of vaccines. It's mainly a power game. Characteristic number two, it's mainly racist and ignorant to minority groups. Take the the George Floyd incident that just revealed that racism in the U.S. has never been gone and was just held under the carpet. Just also look at the long-lasting range of events of U.S. police officers against Black people or the new violence against Asian Americans. We should not be fooled that this just happens in, in the U.S. It happens everywhere. And the pressures of our economic system are causing these behavioral patterns to be unleashed again and again. Uh, characteristic number three, uh, our economic system is mainly masculine by design and is ignoring feminine patterns of managing. Take, for example, the fact that most of the burden of this COVID-19 crisis is uh, pushed towards women, and that's really everywhere. Characteristic number four, our economic system is mainly nationalistic, while intended to be global, something that even trade treaties and all sorts of international clubs can salvage. Take the new rise of nuclear programs. That's a perfect example of that. There's this expression, the balance of power, which is quite revealing of that. And characteristic number five, our current economic system is dependent on perpetual growth and perpetual debt and ignorant to planetary boundaries. You know, while our global debt figure crosses 3,000 trillion US dollars this year globally, Nobody talks about the natural capital debt that, that is created by that very same monetary debt. While we don't know who will ever pay back the monetary debt, the natural damage remains, and the system would normally react with even more debt to be compensated. This cannot work. Debt is a race to destruction for the sake of the so-called growth of the economies. What a joke, you know? Characteristic number six, our economic system is sick from privatization. And the idea of needing to own common goods, the idea to have rights and making a company legally like a person has created exploitation and decay in nature, while uh, washing growth into the pockets of just a, a few people, the so-called 1%. And number seven, or characteristic number seven, our economic system is using philanthropy simply as palliative care to a cancerous system. Why at all do we need philanthropy if the system pretends to serve all humans? It does not. And often philanthropy is just the prolonged arm of corporations to achieve positive reputation and covering their very own damage. So maybe to con conclude on that question, the, this idea of globalization, which our economic system design tends to create, doesn't work when it's most needed due to the fragile bottleneck-like clockwork of interrelated processes in which no slack does exist. There is no pause button, no time for reflection. And it's just COVID-19 that offered us such a pause. The collateral damage that globalization produces became visible to all of us during these last 1.5 years. For example, the insight that 
sustainable supply chains are just a failed belief. There are simply no sustainable supply chains in a globalized logistical chain. Well, yeah, you know, everything that you've been saying, the George Floyd here in Ukraine, we were like, well, we don't have that many black people. In general, I would say society is more acceptive. My husband is a foreigner and I'm not afraid when he's out uh, alone. But the, the general concept was like, we don't understand these people live such a good life somewhere over the ocean and we don't understand their problems. And yet, you're so right. The whole world is affected in one way or another. Women, elderly, national, you know, different nationalities, people. This is a very sad, I would even say depressing status quo that you described, all six points. And yet you say your book, The Corona Chronicles, Envisioning a New Normal for Regeneration and Thriving, and I like that you reinforce it everywhere. It, it was also the title of our previous episode one year ago, uh, Green, Inclusive and uh, Regenerative Economy. Yet you say the book is a ray of hope. Where does your hope come from? Well, first of all, there is this growing awareness of the catastrophe that potentially awaits us with Corona just being the starter of a whole range of coming crises. And the book mentions an economic crisis, uh, the resource crisis, the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and finally the human extinction crisis. We now see what's coming. It also shows how all of these crises are connected to each other, which offers a systemic nearing towards a new normal that avoids continuing silo mistakes in all different fields and puts everything into a connected perspective. So that's, that's generally not a bad thing. And secondly, many of us have learned uh, in this corona crisis that the slowing down of the economy also has had many positive effects and started already to change thinking. For example, the beauty of buying locally uh, and having real relationships with the producers and the produce that you buy, countless efforts of local help and solidarity, and that things don't have to have a price to be of value. That sort of resurfaced. And then finally, uh, there is more and more support for the necessary transition towards a different economic model in which well-being for all is the restated goal and not that really sick idea of the accumulation, uh, accumulation of wealth in the hands of just a few that would then somehow trickle down and benefit all of us. It actually has never happened and it will never happen. So summarizing your question, um, I also like to bring back the probably most important word that describes the return to what's really important, namely love. I actually devoted a whole chapter in the book, and we can talk about that a little bit more later, to the revival of love. I've seen it through my own work, how alienated businesses and the economy is um, from the most essential of all feelings. Love simply doesn't exist in business. And it's not just because it doesn't have a price. It's mainly because it's meant to be unprofessional in a system that is generally built up on competing, defeating, up to the degree um, of destruction. And how utterly sick is that? Right. Well, it's definitely something to think about. Where to, how to integrate even love and not to include as a separate function, but to really make it part of, essentially business, the operations. I like that how you then sketch the idea of regenerative and distributive economy as a way to new normal. There is a common phrase, you know, will we ever return to our old selves? The old way of doing things was not sustainable. So regenerative and distributive economy as a way towards new normal. Could you walk us through this idea and expand on it a little bit more? Sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that in two different ways. Uh, first of all, as the need for a personal transformation, and then also uh, the idea for a more structural transformation. Both are equally important, um, but maybe first the more personal choices. The first step in this process is really the idea of letting go uh, of a lot of the old stereotypes and picking up on the essentials of regeneration and its prolongation, we call that thriving, that perceived assurance that our system creates well-being for all. And I, I actually go back up to Plato, who was uh, saying, the one will only be well unless the whole is well. 
And I'm also using Kant's categorical imperative. And if you take them both together, they are actually both not far away from the original Brundtland report definition of sustainable development, where, where they say sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So there's a whole list of things in the book to let go and pick up on. And the point here is that you need to be ready for this personally. So, for example, listening to this podcast and then uh, returning to business as usual is the clearest of all signs that you're not yet ready for it. Or this pandemic hasn't hit you personally hard enough to instigate personal transformation. So that level of awareness uh, is, is necessary. I also spend quite a lot of time in the book on, on my own quite personal stories that describe a need to break out before you actually are really able to break through. And I personally did it myself various times. One time it was forced by one of my old employers, but for the rest, I made quite specific choices in which I had to ask myself, will you follow the mainstream or would you enjoy walking the path not yet walked? These choices really make up who I am today. And I'm very happy that I took these steps into the unknown while still needing to feed a family and secure proper upbringing of my own kids. So that, that awareness of needing to break out to break through is really essential. And then, and then another awareness, um, and that is working towards or what is called in the, in the book third ways. Instead of being constantly immersed in, in dualisms, you know, there's a there's a very rigorous way that you can educate yourself with um, the recognition alone that most of today's conversations are mainly based on the idea of wrong or right, left or right, red or blue, black or white, quite literally. Yeah. In most cases, doesn't lead to any solution, maximally to a compromise. And that just isn't enough when you stand opposite of Gaia. Those things happen, you know, dozens of times daily. So... For example, why would I buy cheap meat from mass production or a very expensive meat from a single locally produced farmer if I can, for example, uh, become a member of a co cooperative in which we exchange necessary services against cost price and actually without the need to exchange money or repay debt or needing to grow to regain the interest for that debt. Again, another awareness, looking for third ways is really revealed quite, quite a lot. And then, and then a last very personal touch point is the understanding of the idea of what I call rights holdership, which is really a mindset shift that replaces leadership by stewardship. It means a, a structural reshaping from the idea of, I have rights, uh, to uh, always first think of, oh, I have obligations. That's simply the logic of understanding of being part of a bigger whole. It um, reveals a completely different dynamic. It's also much more feminine than masculine thinking. And you can train yourself in this. So one great example is, for example, to analyze your own stance to racism, your role in this and how to approach it in the future. Or you learn about sociocracy of Ted Rao or the pro-social movement of David Sloan Wilson. There's a, there's a lot out there um, that you can acquaint yourself with already. So these are all personal aspects um, and help you in that breaking out to break through. But there are also more structural aspects we need to explore and both in the form of top-down and bottom-up views and the need to get used to different narratives and wording. So just, again, a couple of examples there. First one, really understanding the difference between welfare, wellness, and well-being. Because we are often confusing ourselves with these expressions. So welfare is really commercial and measured on the basis of GDP through economic activities. They define a standard of living. That's, that's still the, the old normal, the idea of producing welfare, but that's not well-being. Then there is wellness, which is a personal and subjective word and measured mainly through happiness research and is a, as such dependent from perception of the life situation of the individual. It's an indicator of life satisfaction, but it's still very much built into the old normal. And then there's well-being, which is environment-oriented and measured on the basis of social and ecological criteria. Now, examples of that are air quality or the degree of biodiversity, the degree of people with depressions or income inequality. That starts to really 
point us towards what Plato said. The one can only be well when the whole is well. So that's a the, that's vocabulary that we shouldn't confuse ourselves with. So that's that's a one a first structural aspect. The second one is the need for a lot of what I call detoxification. So we need to degrowth, which doesn't mean no growth, but other types of growth. The deglorification of stuff, huh? more shared using and not owning. The decreasing of ecological abuse and turning it around towards regeneration. The, the, the decolonization of space and culture, huh? which has been our pattern in the past decennia through the way how we created this economic system. And the demasculinity, finding the feminine genius in economic thinking. And then deprivatization of common goods to restore and regenerate their value. So detox normally leads to what is called homeostasis, the state of steady internal physical and chemical conditions that are maintaining or that are maintained by living systems. That, that is a structural direction that the book very clearly gives. And then, and then another very, very important one, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that, is that whole aspect of localization. Well, my, my first encounter with uh, this di diametrically opposed idea of localization as a leading and life-embracing principle of regeneration was through E.F. Schumacher's 1973 book, Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered, it was called. That was the subtitle, which I actually read after the release of the Brundtland Report in 1987. That was my second book uh, that I read after the Brundtland uh, Report. And Schumacher's ideas fitted swimmingly with the idea of reduction of the erosion of natural capital, would, uh, which would reduce future generations' equity. And it's really amazing how these, how long these ideas go back and how little we really embrace them. But luckily, that is rapidly changing. I have uh, quite a, a couple of wonderful friends who really live localization in its full so, for example, Daniel Christian Val uh, on Mallorca or Joe Brewer in Barichara, Colombia, who regenerates communities and nature while setting up the Design Institute for Regenerating Earth. And at R3.0, many more organizations are actually involved in, uh, in localization. For example, Regen Network or Common Land. And my, my dear colleague, uh, Bill Bowie, is part of the Regenerative Communities Network created by John Fullerton of Capital Institute and is part of the Connecticut Villa uh, River Valley bioregional community. A lot of that is already happening. It's like a parallel world is starting to get into existence. And another really beautiful human being um, urges us to focus on localization. That's Helena Norberg-Horge. She's founder and director of Local Futures. And her most recent book, it's called uh, Local is Our Future describes how a systemic shift from globalized economy towards a network of decentralized, localized economies could really address a number of problems simultaneously, ranging from economic inequality to the climate crisis to mental illness uh, tactics. So that is a very important part of a regenerative and distributive economy more structurally. And the last one that I'm, um, I want to cover is really the idea of how do, you, do we deal with what is now called ownership? So one of our biggest problems uh, in our economic system logic, we are only valued by what we own. And part of what we own is property. So the illusion of separation continues in this stereotype of ownership. If I own a place, I can do whatever I want. No need to render an account to anybody. But owning property actually goes back to the, up to the feudal ages and then reclaimed by the people in the Renaissance, uh, now administrated mainly by public authorities and then sold to private persons or companies or trusts, and finally shuffled around amongst these. So all these transactions come with specific conditions. Uh, in Germany, we have a, uh, a law where it says property obliges, uh, and that's just one of them, we would think. In reality, what we see is very little of this. So ownership mainly means things are fenced, sometimes even secured by cameras. It reminds me of the saying, my home is my castle. Huh? And dare you set a foot on it. So in some countries, you might even get shot if you do. Now imagine the ideal of a regenerative and distributive economy in which the well-being of all is sort of sacrosanct. The idea of property gets a very different load. Huh? First of all, we need to think of property as something that needs 
redefinition. Is owning good uh, property a good principle at, at all? I was really thinking about that a long time. So, so if we accept that land is just let under the condition of safeguarding, think of rights holdership, owning land as property should potentially uh, be revoked at all. You know, planet Earth is the rights holder to whom we owe duties and obligations. So we need to shift from what, from what I think ownership to what I call lendership. And I admit this goes very far, but there is a real click for me with the idea of cooperatives and how they create solidarity with the creation of Gaia. And then finally, a last point um, of these really structural changes, we need new tools. And the book also offers thinking and tools that can help to develop a regenerative and distributive economy. From a top-down perspective, I'm presenting there, for example, the regenerative and distributive economy on one page, the principles of such an economy, and the general market ne uh, mechanism logic of true costing, true benefiting, true pricing, true taxing, and true compensation. And I actually call it the five truths, which in theory will favor the sustainable goods and services and de-incentivize the unsustainable goods and services due to higher pricing of those. So in summary to this question that needed much more time to allude on. Um, it's really by letting go much of the global current global market stereotypes and experimenting with becoming self-sufficient, subsistent, using exchanges and our local currencies, safeguard the balance between stocks and flows of nature uh, and nurture togetherness. So regeneration hubs are actually popping up all over the world right now. What starts from the collective of these hubs is the idea of how do we learn with each other? What's the necessary weaving, it is called. And I first heard that term from Joe Brewer from the Design Institute for Regenerating Earth. We, we will need a new approach to global governance and market mechanisms with incentive structures that prefer sustainable over unsustainable goods and services through the right costing benefiting, pricing, taxing, and remunerating incentives. None of that is what our current economic system offers, but I don't see a plan B for another setup. Right. You know, there is a lot to think about. And what pops to my head immediately is that it requires a lot of stamina, strength, and courage to swim against the mainstream. And you... Mm -hmm. You are one of the you're one voice against maybe Salvans that I follow that I really follow and read from uh, from you your things uh, on LinkedIn that is speaking you know against the mainstream. Right. Take the latest conversation we had on ESG reporting and what can be considered a sustainability report. Certain things, critical elements are simply not there. And yet the majority, 99.9% of players of the market, if I can say, of the sustainability movement, still swim mainstream, deliberately not seen, by choice not seen, or by some other factors. And you are the only person who gives the different perspective and you insist on it. And Honestly, the book that uh, we are discussing now, the Corona Chronicles, I could only expect this systemic approach and this systemic thinking put into words only from you. <laughs> but I want to go back to, you know, the strengths, where to find that strengths. And something tells me it should be connected with what you mentioned just before, with love. It, it just doesn't let, doesn't go out of my head. The notion of love, together with this strength to do things differently, you just said there is none of those components is really present in nowadays economy and the way of doing business. Back to love and strengths, how to find a way to integrate it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's just one of those revelations of the corona crisis. I talked about Plato and about Kant and the idea of one can only be well unless the whole is well. Uh, I talked about thriving and and those things. So, but in the end, those are all expressions of love. 
love is the ultimate expression of doing well. Now, if you try to embed an idea like love in today's market context and for businesses, how they could safeguard love, you would be met with raised eyebrows. My most funny encounter with that was when I asked this question in a company meeting and the answer was, well, you know, we give away free condoms during the carnival seasons, but uh, normally intimate relationships aren't allowed in our organization. And so when such a case happens, we expect that one side is actually leaving the company. So this is as far as it gets today. Love and current business contexts, not a good thing. But yeah, uh, I think we need to just simply come back to that idea because the combination with Plato and with Kant, um, meaning, and, and they express what the what and how of setting a principle that could be leading in the business context and how it would help to define vision, mission, strategy, programs, and measurement of love. So talking about measurement, there there are actually projects underway and more than just one, which seek a translation of love into measurement. I, I am personally involved in the development of a project that's called the Scale of Significance. It's a Dutch project, and I'm quite confident that we will come soon to very feasible results. In this specific case, love is translated into three main values, namely togetherness, balance, and curiosity. And then looked at it from the perspective of love for yourself, love for your company, love for the community you live in, and love for the planet. So what you get is a sort of a matrix that produces a great interview guide and measurement matrix. And we now have had first tests that show that this is really a great instrument and the scale of significance could be when fully, and what the scale of significance could be when it's fully deployed. And I think we will see more of these things in the future. Again, another expression of love is really what I already discussed, the necessary burying of the term leadership and replace it by stewardship. Leadership has this heroic connotation of myriads of wars and war heroes. And in the same way, just not by killing people, our economic system DNA is still programmed like that. So I often, curiously, I often watch uh, press conferences and Facebook live feeds, from example, uh, Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand. There you really clearly see how stewardship works in practice. You know, while most leaders seem to think to only occur in public in highly scripted, high attention, high testosterone level environments, Jacinda is so immensely down to earth. Huh? It sometimes feels you listen to one of your best friends explaining the most complex situations to you in a very simple way. So stewardship really builds the glue with rights holdership to start with and well-being to end up. And it's all glued together by the idea of love. So another thing that's really important um, translating love into, into context is, is language. So language is, is extremely important for this new storyline. You know, I sometimes see headlines in newspapers that, that discuss how people destroy or shred each other by just simply saying they have an, they have an argument with each other. Huh? Uh, those those words are simply a no-go. So we need to get rid of that sort of warfare vocabulary. So love to me really can build resilience, helps us to bridge the move from ego systems to ecosystems and ensures that life without the flourishing of all doesn't lead to a continued collective lie, which is our common current economic system. So love has a lot of connotations and uh, finds its way into how we are dealing with each other in the future, I think. I must admit, hearing about the notion, the term of love and how it expresses itself in the business and economic context is new to me, and I am sure it will be new also to the listeners. COVID became such a wake-up call and really the realization that, well, the old way of doing things was not right and we have to move towards the new normal. Really, I think, shook the whole world and became a kind of a, a new status quo. Like, but rarely someone speaks about how to actually, what's the instruction, where are the actual steps, how to get there. Speaking of you personally and professionally, 
COVID triggered a lot of things. In your case, it resulted in a wonderful book that will help, I'm sure, number of people. When it's under control, because I, I don't believe it will go away completely and really, you will tell me later if, if you do think so, if you do think it will go away. What's next for you and your family, professionally, personally, after it's handled, let's just say? First of all, personally, really, I'm, I'm looking forward to the vaccination as it will my, make life easier again. Uh, on the other hand, I will also continue with a lot of that I personally detox from myself. So I, I don't think that COVID will go away. Um, it, it will just be more under control, um, but it doesn't prevent from other viruses uh, to come up. Just think about um, what's all buried in the permafrost that is now coming up. Um, so we have to be resilient and ready for more of this. But for me personally, really, first step is vaccination. It will make life easier again. I will continue with a lot of personal detox, some of the things that I've been talking about here uh, before. For example, much less travel, uh, the use of locally produced food, the continuation to go off-grid from central electrification, and continued personal investment in regenerative fund models. But um, First and foremost, it's really the, the indirect impact that my work with R3.0 will have on developing and showcasing the economic system conditions that are conducive to life through the R3.0 work ecosystem. For, the, for, for example, at this moment, we're developing an, an educational transformation blueprint to redesign education from the ground up. And we're planning another last blueprint around what we call governance and systemic funding. So those those just complete this work ecosystem of R3.0 that we're working on for a couple of years now. And that will round up our work ecosystem and we can then get into a major revision round of that in 2022 or 2023. So our yearly conferences will continue to happen. Um, they have been life-changing for many, uh, as we hear. And apart from that, I'm going to see what the resonance uh, to the book uh, will be and what it brings forth overall. Um, that's always the most unknown thing when you're not a million copies selling author and do that repeatedly and do that in your main job. You know, I would, I would love to see translations of the book into, for example, Spanish and German language. As many authors, I already see the potential for a, a subsequent book that would come in a couple of years and would most likely look into the documentation and measurement of, the, of that new normal. And I already have a working title. I call it Return on Interbeing, the new transparency for regeneration and thriving. But that's that's a couple of years down the road for now. So a lot of thoughts of how I will actually embrace the new normal while needing to understand that corona will most likely not go away. It's just more controlled. Right. I'm already looking forward to meeting with you in exactly one year to hear what the impact of the book was. Out of curiosity, what do you expect? What would your soul wish to be the impact from the book? Globally, locally, um, uh, you know, touching maybe one person would be enough. What, what's your personal kind of a feeling about the impact the book should have? Well, I, I hope it will, the main message, the message of hope prevails while I'm very clear about the crisis we're in right now. And we now see the light at the end of the tunnel, at least for this part of that whole set of crises. And the, the question will really be, what sort of light do we as humans want to see? Is it the sun of the undergoing old normal? or the rising of the sun of the new normal. Humanity is really at a very decisive moment in history in which the following couple of years really decide on our destiny. So let's hope we find our own third way to allow regeneration uh, or a regenerative and distributive economy to come into fruition. And we learn how to weave together. Uh, the potential for that is really enormous. And I hope that the book will make a contribution to that. While we still see on a daily basis how the old order defends its awful logic, uh, I think we can do this. And COVID-19 has showed us what potential we have if the will is there. 
and that's sort of why I why I wrote the book. The will and what makes me uh, what the book made me think while I was reading it the critical mass critical mass of people really taking a stand and starting to change the behavior and uh, this is what I really hope will happen because the picture that you I saw it many times on your on LinkedIn in particular the one fish eating smaller fish and so on and so forth so the bigger fish uh, is cl- is extinction i think so mm-hmm. uh, corona economic resource climate crisis then all of that is eaten by the biodiversity and finally the biggest fish is the human extinction crisis yeah. it's scary and I, it- i understand i understand that it's scary Um, and it really just has to do with the fact that, you know, first of all, I wanted a visualization of that. It uh, worked. That, <laughs> that comic. And that was really based on a couple of, of earlier cartoons that I've seen that have only given sort of patchwork of that understanding. And, you know, why I'm hopeful is, is that we now understand that there is this whole queue of different crises that are all uh, interdependent on each other. And if we do it right at the at the lowest fish level, we can really avoid the other bigger fish to find their prey. So mm-hmm. from that perspective, um, yeah, it was just one of my ways to visualizing what what's ahead of us. Right. Well, I, I really do hope it will create that critical mass of thinking people that will move the mass. <laughs> towards the new normal regenerative distributive economy. Traditionally, Ralph, one last question to wrap it up. I always ask my guests one for one piece of advice for the listeners of Sustainability Explored, who are now, by the way, as a matter of fact, are sitting in more than 120 countries. Last time I counted, 125 countries. That's impressive or a podcast like this to, mm-hmm. to have this reach. So I really want to give all these people, all our listeners, the best that you can give them in one, two sentences max, kind of a, a boom message. Well, I think, I think what the book also tries to express is don't wait for anybody else. You know, there is already already so much out there There is so much you can actually also copy paste from others locally. So, so the, the whole idea of localization and, and, and community building and all these things are, are great. You know, don't wait for any government or don't wait for any corporation or don't wait for any technology that sort of will save the world. Uh, even our accountants will not save the world, <laughs> although they, they often pretend that they would do that. Take my personal case you know, break out in order to break through. And yes, you're right by saying it needs some stamina. But on the other hand, I think if you look into the mirror and see who you are and what you want to be, especially when you have kids, uh, that, that is a very decisive extra point that you need to reflect on, then I think we just need to all realize By knowing all these things, there comes responsibility. So how do I give responsibility shape and be sort of a good, a good parent, a good traveler on spaceship Earth? And you, know, you can all push that away and say, well, you know, it's the system. And what can I do as a single person you know, opposing the system? You can and you should. And you will have these discussions with your kids. Like I had that same discussion with my son, and that's in the epilogue of the book. Um, Really a very, very emotional experience for me when, you know, and maybe I I can just share that here as well, if you want. Um, I, I had a lot of discussions with my father who was born in 1930 in Germany. So he was born into the developments of the Second World War. And then my grandparents sent him to a Hitler school in the Bavarian Alps. Later on, I I had a lot of uh, uh, discussions with him about 
that school and his return to Berlin, which he needed to do by himself after the war has ended. Uh, and they went in a group and lost a lot of friends on, on the way. Um, that was real, really the, the rumblings of the, of the Second World War ending. And um, my, my question was always to him, how could you not know? What has, what has happened? And, and well, because his answer was always, well, we, we didn't know. You know, sort of brainwashed child and whatever. And, uh, and, and while my father has become a real liberal uh, all over his life after the end of the Second World War, this question was still nagging on me. And I had a lot of discussions with my father around that. And one day I had another discussion with him and, and my son, who was 15 at that time, was listening. And on the same evening, he came to me and he said, well, you know, I've been, I've been listening <laughs> to your discussion. And you know what? When we in the future will have that discussion about the war of your generation, there's one argument that you cannot use in front of me, and that is you didn't know all about it. So what's your answer? Yeah. So it's these discussions that I think a lot of people will have with their kids, especially after Fridays for Future, where... I think a lot of discussions will happen at lunch and dinner tables around what are you doing? So, and I would just simply say, take the book to be better prepared for that because the, that discussion will come sooner or later. 100%, wonderful, brilliant words. As always, a wealth of wisdom. And it was great catching up with you, Ralph, and it was great reading the book and I continue. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what, what the discussion it will trigger. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's curious. I'm, I'm as curious as you are. We will see over time. Yeah. So just uh, a bit more time when the book is out and then uh, I'll see what happens. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. Well, as always, as always, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today and for listening to this episode. This was episode number 88, season eight of Sustainability Explored. If you like this show or if you like this episode, you found it useful going to implement any advice given by Ralph and read his book that will be, by the way, available for purchase in just a couple of days, please let me or Ralph know via LinkedIn. We would very much appreciate your feedback and it will most certainly make us very, very happy. Also, subscribe to this podcast not to miss any new episodes. If you like it, please leave a review, rate, comment on the platform you're listening on. We're now available on 77 platforms, I guess, which is awesome. Uh, your review, your comments, your stars will help other people discover this podcast and help them educate themselves on uh, the topics of sustainability. Thank you again very much for listening, for being with us. And until next time, take care, stay sustainable.